Welcome to this episode of Dental IQ. I'm your host, Fabio Alfieri, and this week I sat down with Professor Lauren Bozek, a highly accomplished research scientist and educator who's devoted a lot of his career to advancing the future of dentistry. Professor Bozek has recently published a paper outlining some of the potential negative effects of teeth whitening. We discuss what he found in his study and also what he thinks we could change in the world of oral cosmetics to preserve the health of millions of smiles globally. Stay tuned to hear from Professor Bozak and find out what he's discovered in this study about teeth whitening. Dr. Laurent Bozak, thank you very much for joining us on Dental IQ today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm delighted to be able to, to come and speak to you guys today. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm very excited. And sitting in front of me, I've got one of your most recent reports. I'm very excited to actually dig deeper with yourself on. It's the Compromised Dental Cells Viability Following Teeth Whitening Exposure. Um, I've had the chance to read this and it's unbelievably interesting and I know that all of our listeners uh, are keen to hear more as well about the research topic and the results. Um, but let's start sort of more at the beginning, uh, a little bit about yourself, uh, Laurent. It's, I'd like to know a bit about how you've sort of ended up in the industry that you're in currently and kind of what led to this research that you're doing. So um, where, where did you grow up and where was your education based? Yeah, so thank you. Um, so... I grew up in France many, many years ago, and I was fortunate uh, while, uh, before the Brexit happened, some French students could move over to Britain in the UK to do their, to do their undergrad studies. And so I did, uh, and then I loved so much universities, I decided to, to stay in university. And I was very fortunate to, uh, to start a PhD very, very early on in, in my life. Um, but uh, because uh, the topics of this podcast is about dentistry, I'm a physicist, so I'm a bit of a misnomer in dentistry because I come from a physics background, but mm. I've devoted the last 15 years of my life to try to understand what I know about physics and biophysics to dentistry. So my background is trade physics, applied physics, imaging, um, which uh, is something great because we can apply that every day into dentistry and dental science. So you're saying your backgrounds started in physics. Where was that pivot from physics to dentistry? What, what caused that change? So at, um, at the end of my PhD, where I was building equipment, I was doing a PhD in instrumentation, um, developing tools such as atomic force microscopy. I decided that at the end of, at the end of that uh, PhD, I wanted to do um, some more applied science that could help uh, humans can be at health, try to investigate diseases using those tools. And in fact, I did a big jump going from a physics department to a medicine department. So I, I decided to leave a little bit the world of straight physics and instrumentation and go to the, to the world of medicine. And that's where I started to work at University College in London, which I've been for almost 18 years before I moved to Toronto. And there I started in the Faculty of Medicine. As a, as a simple postdoc. And in fact, it was amazing because the first six months of my job, my boss, uh, Mike Horton at the time, the late Mike Horton, and I, we didn't understand each other. So he was a medic yeah. and I was a physicist. And we, sp we spoke different language. But what the amazing things was when we started to understand each other very well on a very deep scientific level, sparks started to happen because we came from completely two different backgrounds, two different ways of thinking about the same problem and in fact it worked wonderfully well so how's that pivot pivot is really about trying to um to to want to change a little bit direction of careers and just trying to go something towards more uh, health benefits mm. and how i came to dentistry afterwards is that it's interesting because during my postdoc and my um with my quarter at uh, at uh, ucl i was starting to work on collagen yeah, right. And then sliding no moment at the end of my postdoc, I met with a professor, Professor Robert Brown, that's uh, departed also, but he just mentioned to me on a Wednesday afternoon, Laurent, you know, the job of assistant professor in that dental institute just attached to university. Uh, no, I didn't. The, the, the deadline for application is tomorrow. <laughs> I submitted my application, got the job. Wow. And that's how you pivot from <laughs> straight physics all the way to dentistry. That's a big pivot too. Uh, you said something before about how your, your boss and yourself couldn't stand each other. Do you find that between the sort of physics world and the medical world, do you find the characters within those two worlds are very different? 
people don't understand you. And at the same time, I recognize a moment when I don't understand them. And in fact, we have to be very, very humble in terms of how we are asked for explanation and just make sure that we we find a connection. What I found amazing still today, when I when I work with clinicians, we expose they expose a problem, I expose my solution, or vice versa. You always click. Right. And that's uh, for the last 15 years I've been working with clinicians and it's always an amazing experience. Right. So how much time in between landing this dental, uh, this uh, head of the dentist, dentistry department job and founding the Eastman Center for Postgraduate Research, how much time was in between those two? So when, when I was... Um, when I was appointed assistant professor at the, at the UCL Eastman Dental Institute, I always, I've always been interested in trying to, to develop a young researcher. I think it's one of my mission, my career, is to work with very, very aspiring uh, young PhD student, younger than me, um, and very, very, very clever people, much more clever than me, and try to make them go the extra mile and try to unlock the potential. It may sound very cheesy, but that's something I'm very, very passionate about. How you, how you take a, a piece of coal and you shape it into a rough diamond and then uh, the diamond. And in fact, I before I become head of research, I, I took the, this position, exactly this position about mentoring and about looking at the growth of the students. And it only came, when I became uh, head of research that now I was in a position where I could try to create an entity to try to host uh, all the PhD students under the same umbrella with a vision, again, of trying to make them better students. Uh, we had about 80, it was oscillating between 80 to 100 PhD students. So at that institute, which is a huge, huge cohort of research students uh, mm. for dental institutes. And um, since I've left, I believe there's it is still working accordingly to what I set out to do to be done in the first place. Mm. With that many students, I mean, that research center would be producing such incredible work, I can imagine, and probably still is as well. Um, so I know that your physics background, your, one of your largest areas of expertise is atomic force microscopy. Now, myself, I've got no idea what that is. So I want to hear a little bit more because I'm sure our listeners probably don't know too much about it as well. So atomic force microscopy, it's a, it's a wonderful tool. Um, so most of you may be aware of what's a microscope. It enables you to look through a set of binoculars at something that is very, very small, you know, being the, the wing of a butterfly or being just a, an ant or which something that you cannot clearly see with your, just your normal eye. So unfortunately, because of low physics, is this only some things that we can see with the eyes or with the best optics that you can have. And this is guided by the diffraction limit. So the diffraction limit is basically a law of physics that tells you under whatever light you can see the smallest object possible. Well, as physicists, we like to go as small as possible. And many of you must have seen images of an atom. Well, you can't see an atom with your naked eye. Actually, I, I rephrase that. You do see that every day because everything around us is made of atom. But in fact, if you want to isolate an atom, a molecule, a protein, for example, DNA, you cannot see it really with your naked eye. So what we do there, we use an atomic force microscope. And the easiest concept to understand that if you've got an old vinyl recorder and you put a stylus inside the groove of your vinyl record, the stylus go up and down based upon the little, the little um, morphologies, a little change inside that groove, and it produces a note of music. Well, atomic force microscopy is exactly the same principle. We use a very, very sharp needle, a stylus, to come into a contact with the surface. And we measure the bumps and the groove on the surface. And then we reproduce the three-dimensional images of what the cantilever, what the, that small needle felt on the surface. So it's a little bit like reading Braille, but at a very, very small scale. So in fact, when you see at that scale, you don't see, you feel. Yeah, right, right. Correct me if I'm wrong. The atomic force microscopy was introduced because I think the original process, was it scanning tunneling microscopy? If I'm correct. Correcting? So it was, yeah. it, was a, it was a small evolution or big evolution uh, of uh, scanning tunneling microscopy. And in fact, uh, Christoph Gerber and his, um, and his supervisor um, so the Nobel Prize was awarded for scanning turning microscope and the, the, the atomic force microscope came along and make a big, big breakthrough with the first instrument only be commercialized in the early to, well, late 
1997 and it only made a breakthrough into science into the early 2000s. So it's not a terribly long, uh, terribly old uh, technique. Yeah, right. Because scanning tunneling microscopy could only we could only view things that was conducting or semiconducting. That, yeah. That's correct. Whereas AFM uh, AFM is everything essentially. So as you correct. said, so, like, yeah, yeah. So yeah, with like, AFM, we recently, for example, published uh, some papers where we were looking at uh, the property of all bowel film. So that's our latest paper. Mm -hmm. um, we've looked also at how different um, materials that have got the consistency of a contact lenses, how we could measure the mechanics. We've been looking at different structure in bones. We've been imaging cells. And the beauty of AFM over all the type of microscopy is that you your sample or whatever you're imaging remains alive and remain into the correct condition, such as you can start really to study complex system and and be able to to make great science. So atomic force microscopy, yes, is definitely a tool to watch out and can be combined with the type of microscopy as well. So right, right. So this is an area of expertise for yours whilst you were yes. sort of still working within the physics world. How have you adapted that since making the transition over into you know the medical dentistry uh, profession? So I'll give I'll give you an example that's going to be very very relevant to dentistry. So I was discussing with one of my one of my very good friend who's pediatric dentist, and she was telling me that she was trying to restore some uh, some teeth from uh, children with uh, osteogenesis imperfecta and dentinogenesis imperfecta, which is the conditions that are affecting, uh, affecting the, the structure of the, um, of, uh, of the dentine, the core part of the tooth, the bony part of the tooth. And in fact, it tends to be very, very difficult to restore, as in putting composite material and restoring them. And we started a project, and we published on this also, where we started to look at the quality of the collagen and inside the inside the bone part of the tooth. So the dentine is, is a bit like a bone. It's made of a collagen component and it's made of a mineral component. They mash together and they form a nice structure with tubules. So long, long tubes that are propagating through the dentine. And what we found is that the collagen was abnormal inside the dentine, meaning that the composite material that has been used for restoration are troubled to bind very, very strongly onto, um, onto the dentine material. So that was how we've been able to, for example, to look at the mechanical properties. So we say we use atomic force microscopy to try to look very carefully around those tubules that are being formed, the mechanical properties of, um, of the collagen. So as I mentioned, we've also done a lot of work in terms of uh, in in terms of assessing the, the properties and the, the imaging of all bowel film. For example, we had another another piece of work that was uh, contracted by a big pharma company, who had a feeling that mouthwash were promoting the formation of all bowel film. Who would have thought so? Wow. We tend to brush our teeth. We use mouthwash to rinse our teeth, and effectively, we should have a very clean mouth afterwards. Well, that company had an inkling that, in fact, the mouthwash they were producing was promoting the onset of a new bowel film growth. So what we did there is to, again, use a microscope and modify the, the tip of the needles that we use with a live bacteria and try to look how sticky it was to a dental surface. And what we found is that if we immerse that single bacterium into a mouthwash solution, yes, it was dead, that was true, it was dead, but it was become hundredfold more stickier. Wow. So, so it, that's, it was killing the bacteria. It was, it was killing the bacteria, but it been yeah. making adhering a lot more. You'd mm. say, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that in this case, we use what we call first colonizer. So these are bacteria that come first onto the dental surface. Their role is just to prepare for the bathroom to grow. Whether it's survival or not, doesn't matter. Mm. So, in, so in fact, what happened is that yes, those primary colonizer were dead, 
they become super sticky, but it's still added even more onto the surface, such as all the remaining bacteria could pile on top of them and recreate even more easily um, an old biofilm. So this is oh. how you can use AFM to try to answer this sort of uh, problems. What was it in the mouthwash that was causing this? The mouthwash, uh, is a critical component of the mouthwash is chlorhexidine, mm. which is uh, an antimicrobial um, anti is that is being used commonly into, into yeah, into mouthwash, even into uh, uh, Band-Aid and so on. It's just, um, it's a very, very common one. Jeez. So this AFM, this atomic force microscopy, is this a process that you used in this recent study that you've published um, on the effects of carbon hydroxide? We, we did a little bit on the, not on this particular study, but on the, on the previous studies that, uh, that preceded uh, our recent finding uh, mm -hmm. in which we were interested in um, looking at the structure of that collagen that sits inside, uh, inside the dantine um, when exposed to uh, carbon hydroxide. Carbon hydroxide is, uh, is one of the compounds that's being used into two-fighting agent. In fact, that carbon hydroxide is the element here, the very important element is peroxide because the carbon hydroxide can break down into hydrogen peroxide. So hydrogen peroxide is more well known as a very, as bleach. Okay, mm -hmm. this is bleach. This is your asshole bleach that you, you can clean your bathroom with. It is, it is that's a, the core element. Mm. So, um, what we found is that we started to evaluate a little bit the impact of bleach onto, um, onto collagen. The reason why we started to look at that is because our first study had nothing to do with tooth bleaching, but it, we were interested with root canal treatment. In root canal treatment, unfortunately for patients who have to undergo root canal treatment, the endodontists tend to use bleach to try to disinfect the inside of the, of the canal to, mm -hmm. to kill all the bacteria. And it's a very effective process. It's a process that's been known for several decades and is still very widely done across the world. So what we were concerned during that study is how the protein inside the dentine, so that bone part of the tooth, could be affected following exposure to root canal to of the to bleach root canal treatment to bleach. And what we found is that in fact, yes, the collagen was being being quite badly affected. Mm -hmm. And again, this has been this has been published. We're now working on solutions to try to prevent this to occur. So when we looked at the composition of tooth widening agent, we said, wow, hang on here, we've got a compound that can turn into bleach. So is we found already that the damage could occur inside the root canal. Let's see what happened in the case when people are when people are using to finding at home. Mm -hmm. And we were partly concerned with um, of uh, individuals that keep on reusing over and over and over to finding agent and just basically. So I'm I'm talking here about gels that sit in tray and you put those gel those tray overnight inside your mouth for eight hours sometime and effectively you get up in the morning you got beautiful, beautiful according to them white smile. So we started to look at that and we started to look at the structure of the collagen and we started to see that the collagen was seriously disrupted. So using AFM we are able to see the change in the structure of the collagen. So a collagen that is healthy at the scale of an AFM look like long spaghetti, but on this spaghetti, they, they, they've got an annular periosteity. So, it's, so in fact, it's not very straight, but it's a little ridge along the, along the fibril. Interestingly enough, those, those, uh, those, that annular periodicity is conserved across all species. So if you mm -hmm. take a bit of collagen from a cow or from um, from a shark, from a yeah, from, from any species who, who has collagen, you can see that banding piracy along the fibril very, very, very obvious. And it is conserved. Now, what we started to see as soon as we exposed the collagen to the bleach, effectively is that banding piracy disappeared and turned the collagen into gelatin. So it broke down the collagen. So that's what we, how we used 
uh, AFM to try to quantify some of the degradation of, uh, of collagen right. inside and the enamel, inside the dentin. And as you mentioned before, moving on to this study that has recently yep. been published, it's looking at the use of at-home teeth whitening kits. And Correct. you said like a lot of people sleep with these teeth whitening kits in, but I believe this study was measuring a four-hour treatment as opposed to an eight-hour treatment. And that you've is also correct. Got, yeah, you've got 15% and 16% carbamide peroxide formulations as well, right? Yeah, so we went, in fact, uh, for some of the tests, we went to... 10, 16 percent, and some of the some of the other tests we've been to an even broader range, from five to thirty-five percent. So in our first studies that was published in 2019, we showed that the the, the dentin was was seriously affected through the perfusion of the byproduct of degradation of the carbon white peroxide. So the hydrogen peroxide, the bleed was penetrated very, very deep inside the dentin, probably through those tubules, like, like I've mentioned before. You said byproducts, um, Laurent. So just for anybody who might not understand. So the byproduct of carbamide peroxide is hydrogen peroxide during the whitening process. Correct, correct. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, but sorry. hydrogen peroxide will now also react. So there's a whole point of the hydrogen peroxide is to generate a free radical that will also interact with a chromophore inside your teeth. So the mm -hmm. whole point of this process is to break down the big molecules that sit inside your teeth, being the enamel, being the dentine, so that according to whoever uses product shouldn't be there because they tend to taint or give a different color to the tooth as they wish that they don't wish to have. Right, right. These so free radicals that you mentioned, sorry, just quickly, the free radicals yes. you mentioned, it's most typically hydroxyl radical, but obviously depends on the oral environment um, based that on the other correct. ones. Right. Yes. Yeah. So this, this, big, this big chromophore can be due to, you know, for example, if you knock your teeth, if you knock your, one of your front incisors, for example, your tooth can darken extremely, extremely fast and, that, and it looks almost black. In fact, what you have underneath the enamel is, is blood. Or if you drink a lot of coffee, you can have a lot of a uh, lot of uh, tannin stain also on your on your teeth. So so in fact, this 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 big chromophore are there is there as a result of lifestyle. Um, but uh, for those who wish to 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 whiten the teeth, they, they decide that it's actually not acceptable to to have this chromophore in place and so the the chemistry is there to break down those big those big molecules and they're being broken down through the agent peroxide approach right, right. so so we've shown that the dentin was affected very deep so we, we so in this new publication we had that we wanted to to showcase two pieces of work one wanted to understand how if you put your carbon peroxide into a gel, how can you access so easily the dentin? Mm -hmm. You still got an enamel layer. You still got the enamel layers that sit on top of your dentin. And the enamel is, I would say, almost 90% made of um, mineral. And it's a very, very uh, well ordered structure. And I, as, as a physicist, I tend to call it the shield of your teeth. So it's there to, to protect the softer dentin that sits below and definitely the softer pulp or the vital element that sits at the core of your dentin. Mm -hmm. So what we did there, we tried to measure the, something called the, the ratio of the protein to mineral content. So, so the enamel is really um, a structure that is extremely regular with some small prism that tend to repeat themselves. And in between each of these prism, you've got some very, very well-defined little protein that sits there that's almost acting as a, as a, as a sealer around those prisms. Mm -hmm. So the prisms are very rigid, very well-defined, but unfortunately, as we use the peroxide-based tooth whitening, the protein around the prism tend to dissolve. And in so fact, in our study... So this protein sorry. is enamelin um, and so forth. That kind of creates that sheath around the teeth. Correct. Correct? Right. Correct. Yes. 
And uh, so this product, so we found that in fact, using the, the stuvoining agent, they tend to reduce by up to 50% the amount of protein that's present in between these animal world. Meaning that now you're opening some very, very tiny gap in between those crystals for the peroxide to actually penetrate inside, inside the, the inner part of the tooth. Right. Okay. So, so this is very, very it's important. In, it's increasing the permeability of the enamel by reducing Correct. that protein. Absolutely. Content. Okay. I'm with you. Absolutely. So one thing, for example, we haven't looked at in between the dentin and the enamel, you've got a very, very important protein layers that act as a shock absorber. So if you, if you knock your teeth, you've got a shock absorber, which is called the enamel dental, uh, uh, that injunction and this this again is a protein layer that we haven't investigated uh, that's something that we would like to do in the future um what i was going to say so once a peroxide penetrates and reach a dentine then it can thump. so we wanted to see what would happen to the cell that sits at the core of the um, of the dentine itself so we decided to grow some human dental um, stem, uh, stem cells um, and try to see whether we could expose them through a dentin layer to the same component of a tooth whitening. So we created an in-house in model, a perfusion model, and the dentin layer was three millimeters. So if effectively we had a, a tray at the bottom of the tray with our dental pulp cells, that were separated to a carbamide peroxide and the separation was made by a three millimeter dentin slab. So three millimeter dentin is absolutely gigantic when we look, for example, in sizes where the thickness of dentin between what we call the pulp chamber and the enamel is just maybe about a millimeter. Mm -hmm. So we grossly overestimated the, um, that thickness, the thickness of the, um, of the dentin layer, just to be sure that we're not trying to promote the effect. So the only way that the, the peroxide could leak out was through the dentin layer, through the dentin tubules. And as he, as he was penetrating through the dentin tubule underneath it, what we had was a layer of dental pulp cells. So what was very, very interesting is that as a function of the concentration of carbamide peroxide, uh, we, were able, we were able to measure a significant reduction in cell viability. So what does that mean? Effectively, cells were dying very fast. They were dying, dying very fast. In fact, what we found is that at 35% uh, so carbamide peroxide gel, the cell we're dead, 99% within less than half an hour. Mm. So with it for a 10%, we found that it was almost also half an hour. At 5%, we found that it took a lot, lot longer for the cell to, uh, to die, but eventually they also die. On a control sample, the cell didn't die. So in fact, what we would so, so the only way that the cells could have died is by being um, exposed to the peroxide coming from the carbamide peroxide. Right. I have, a, I have a question on that point as well, because yeah. I want to know from your point of view, Dr. Lauren, is how applicable is this in an in vivo environment? Because, you know, there's uh, obviously a lot of factors, you know, like pulp pressure, for example, that would um, contribute to, you know, mitigating the effects of this cell yep. damage and cell death. So from your point of view, how you know viable is it in an in vivo situation? In vivo so, being sort of obviously in the mouth, uh, like real instance, yep. yeah. So it is true that uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of comments that we had originally on our review of our studies was, is there is partial pulp pressure uh, that will make sure that fluid does not penetrate all the way down into the, into the pulp, that is true. But um, in our case, uh, all the dentin tubules were also filled up to halfway with uh, growth media. So in fact, we had also a partial pressure inside, mm -hmm. uh, inside our system. And still, as soon as the peroxide managed to come into contact with a, with a growth media in which the cells were being uh, cultured in, 
they still managed to diffuse all the way down to the base of the plate. Uh, so um, that was one of the issues. But uh, the second issue, and we acknowledge it into, the, into our study, so we didn't take into account the Zenit uh, defense mechanism. So as soon as cells will start to detect uh, peroxides, they, they will normally try to, to create a defense mechanism to try to, to protect themselves. And we didn't take that into account. That's why we are only, uh, it's only an in vitro model. But it is an important in vitro model because, to our knowledge, this has never been. This approach has never been demonstrated. Nobody has ever thought that the use of uh, tooth whitening of nitrates may eventually induce cell death. For sure, and I suppose there's certain aspects of the study that kind of uh, reinforce that as well. Uh, for example, the three millimeter dentin disc, as opposed to the typical one millimeter that you you right. find in in your dentin, um, and also the fact that it's a four hour treatment, not an eight hour treatment, which some carbamide peroxide uh, uses are overnight as well. Yep. So there are certain things that you know it's although it might not be a direct. Uh, essentially set of proof to say that in vivo here are the results but it's essentially saying like this is the possibility of what's happening when you do use carbamide peroxide in vivo so in fact in fact um having looked at tufoining for quite a while now one of the main uh, issue about tufoining is hypersensitivity and you know it's a patient or the um the individual feeling you know sore teeth after mm. having whitened the teeth so if we think about what's lying inside the dentin tubule, we've got nerve cells, we've got a lot of different normotoblasts, we've got a lot of different cells. And in fact, so the cell lines that the cells that we use lie very, very deep inside, inside the pulp chamber. So it's really at the base of the tooth, uh, at, the, um, at the tooth, yes. And so they're unlikely to be directly exposed to that, to, to the peroxide. However, the whole raft of cells that sits on the periphery is that likely to do. And for example, nerve cells start to be exposed to peroxide, that is certainly gonna give an hypersensitivity response. So in fact, one of the arguments related to tooth whining has, been, has always been about the change in pressure inside those dentin tubules. We may want to review this and saying it might be an overexcitation of the nerve cells inside the tooth being exposed directly to the peroxide. Right, right. There's a really interesting point in here, which you touched on before. It says that 5% carbamide peroxide and 10% carbamide peroxide display similar results, similar whitening results, I believe, but with the 5% carbamide peroxide, significantly less cell death than the 10%. Yeah, so the notion of 5% carbamide peroxide is, um, so it's always, uh, so, to, 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 based on our study and our finding, we would always advocate for the smaller concentration of uh, common white peroxide as much as possible. 10%, we can see that is almost reaching the same killing rate as, uh, as a 35. So it's almost that we reach already an oversaturation of peroxide and it tends to, 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 to kill the, yeah, the cells as quickly as 35. So uh, 5% doesn't, doesn't go as fast. Um, so in fact, what but in terms of improvement in widening, there is debate whether the 5% is providing as much widening as individual would want. And in fact, it's, it's, my approach is for those who want to widen their teeth is to go slow and go steady and just mm. making sure that you, you understand what you're doing. I think the faster it goes and that's a the faster you want the, the process to occur, the stronger the consideration you're going to use or different modality, but they're also risk associated. But I wanted to come back on the, on the in vivo component mm -hmm. that you mentioned. So how could you translate that in vivo? So to date, I'm not aware of any cases of dentists that have, um, so any case of dentists that reported a clinical case where, for example, a tooth fracture has occurred into the patient as a result of tooth whitening mm -hmm. or, or other adverse events. The reason why is because I don't think dentists are looking for that. They're not looking. So a tooth fracture, a tooth fracture would occur. The last thing they probably would be looking is about 
as a patient as overwhite in the teeth, for example. So why is it partly important? So why do I link to fracture and teeth? Is that in the case of the dentine, so that bone component in the middle of the tooth that provide all the, the support for the tooth and the growth of the tooth. If the collagen is being completely removed and the cells are being damaged, first, we have to know that tooth do not regrow. They can adapt to a bit of damage, but they do not regrow. So this is completely misnomer. Uh, so they do not regrow. So if the collagen is degraded, the cells are harmed. So now your dentine turned into a lump of stone. It turned into a lump of mineral. So you lost all the elastic component holding the dentine together. Any kind of fracture will break down your tooth very, very fast. So I think that's something very important. Now, also repeating that experiment, repeating that experiment in vivo, for example, on animal model. Well, in terms of an ethics point of view, knowing that we're gonna be purposely harming an animal to try to kill the, the, the inside of the, the pulp, I think doesn't sit very well with me. Of course. Yeah, so realistically, there is no way to conduct this study in vivo in a person without causing severe damage, because it would involve you drilling into the tooth and so forth, right? In person, I would say no. Uh, mm. In animal, it depends on where people stand on ethics. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, I mean, that's why this study was so interesting to me is because you've almost recreated as closely as possible the in vivo situation in vitro um, and produced results that are you know as accurate as possible whilst also considering things like again the thickness of the enamel disc and the pulp pressure and so forth so it is a very interesting read um, the the question i've got for you is from your expertise what do you think the future development of safe teeth whitening looks like then? Do you have a stance or an opinion on what that development and research might be? For me, the safe tooth whitening um, involves a greater awareness by those who undertake these uh, procedures about what the potential risk that involves. I think today it's, okay, you go and either have your teeth whitened and you do it at home, you can. so it's the only, it's the only thing you've been told is that you may see a bit of discoloration of your gum or you can have a hypersensitivity. There's no long-term risk. And I think that's, uh, that's in a profession, some things needs to be, need to be looked at, uh, mm -hmm. whether these long-term risks are, are evident. Um, so another aspect is that, so at the moment, all tooth whining approaches want to go as deep, as fast as possible. So. So it's a different whitening product. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how far down inside the tooth do we need to propagate those different, those different compounds to provide a change in color. We do not need to go very deep inside the tooth. We may not even go, need to go into the dentine and we can remain inside the enamel. And un, unlike, um, Unlike inside the dentine, the protein inside the enamel regenerates. So we, we've, if we could confine the widening within the enamel, I think that would be a great, uh, a great approach. Um, and, and finally, I think it's important to try to see, to see, can we get away from peroxide, peroxide agent? I mean, peroxide is everywhere um, in terms of from disinfection to changing your hair color to whitening the teeth. It is a very harsh chemical. Um, and I think we owe it to the customer, to the client, to the patient, to try to make them understand what is, um, what is the impact of using um, such procedures on themselves on a, for those who do it routinely. And this is a big thing, those who do it very, very often, that much, much greater risks than they can even imagine. One of my favorite lines from the study is actually in the conclusion. And it says that a compromise needs to be found between the concentration of peroxide used, the exposure time, the desired patient results, um, the and also acceptance of the final adverse effects from the whitening treatment as well. 
And this is essentially a very scientific way of saying that beauty is pain and you need to figure out how much pain you're ready to endure in order to accomplish how much beauty that you want to achieve from the, the result as well. Absolutely. It's, it's this procedure. So we're not talking here about um, in office. So going to see a dentist that prescribed you some tooth whitening because you're trying to correct some of the shade of your teeth. Here we're talking exclusively about those who do tooth whitening at home. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's a self, I don't want to use the word self-inflicted, but it's a self-administered procedure. Mm. And what, it, what we have to be careful is that to say that it's all safe because it's obviously not all safe in the same ways that if uh, somebody wanted to dye their hair with a peroxide-based product, they will know very quickly that they can't, they can't dye their hair every day, otherwise they're going to be losing their hair very, very fast. Well, it is the same it is the same concern except there's never been a spotlight and we always thought, well, the teeth is okay, it's very strong, it's very resistant. And in fact, uh, it'll be interesting to see in about 20 years, what would be the impact on our health, especially for those who have been over widening the teeth. Mm. Sure. But, but maybe, maybe to, to try to, to, to expand a little bit on this. So when I speak to my clinicians, they always ask me, but what's the alternative? What's the alternative to tooth whining? Well, it's to file down the tooth and putting veneers. Because at the end of the day, the, the, the patient, the customer, um, will want to have a whitened teeth. So in fact, the dentists are stuck in that conundrum dilemma. So a little bit, you know, do, I, do I put veneers or do I let my patient whiten the teeth with, with a potential risk? And from... A, a conservation dentistry point of view, you want to save as much of the tooth. So in fact, the last resort should really be filing the tooth and putting veneers. Absolutely. But it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I speak on behalf of a lot of dentists when I say that I think keeping as much of the natural tooth as possible for as long as possible is, is always the priority, isn't it? Um, so I think you'd agree with this as well, where if you're going to be using peroxide, go and see a dental professional because at least they can mitigate the potential risks and adverse effects. Whereas at home, you don't have the ability to do that. Uh, whitening isn't for everyone either. So by seeing a dentist, they'll be able to tell you, hey, look, you are you know, in a position where you can whiten or you may have exposed dentin or you know, receding gums that might not qualify you for a whitening treatment. And knowing that information Correct. early can potentially save you thousands of dollars worth of treatment costs. Um, let alone the access to a gum shield to prevent morphological changes to the soft tissue in your mouth or, you know, the over-application of peroxide at high percentages such as 35% hydrogen peroxide, which you can purchase online, which frankly is you know, a weapon to be used at home by yourself. Yeah, it's, yeah it, is, it, is, it is very scary, the amount of uh, peroxide that's contained into the 35%. Uh, um, I often try to make a little bit um, the, um, the comparison with the, the bleach that we use in, uh, for cleaning bathroom and so on. And uh, mm -hmm. the 35% peroxide contain a lot, lot, lot more bleach than what we use to clean the bathroom. So it, as I said, for, for those listening and just, you know, would you put bathroom bleach inside your mouth and rinse it out and just make it to, to have better, to have a whiter smile. Well, then think about whether you'd put 35% peroxide because effectively you're going much higher dose than that. That's, that's an effective metaphor to use. <laughs> um, I actually want to, on that point as well, I want to know your thoughts on the EU's regulation of the use of peroxide because um, I believe it might've been in 2005 that they passed heavy regulations around the use of hydrogen peroxide uh, in at-home yes. whitening products to I believe it's 0.1%, um, or if you were to go to a dentist, it's capped at 6%. Uh, in Australia, I believe we still offer 35%, uh, and same, same with a lot of other countries as well. What are your thoughts on EU passing those strict regulations? I think it's a good regulation because uh, the 35% should not make the place on the market. They shouldn't be on the market. It's like you, like you said, it's almost a weapon. Um, is adverse effect. Yes, the results can be immediate. It's going to be absolutely immediate, but the patient uh, or the customer will be um, suffering from very high level of hypersensitivity 
and the gum is going to be completely bleached and severely, severely damaged. Um, actually, in part of our study, we looked also at cell line uh, from the gums, and we saw also that uh, um, there would be also significantly harm using um, using those concentrations we just discussed. So I think any kind of safeguard um, is required it, just to try to prevent the, the customer and try to prevent uh, to to sorry to safeguard to to uh, to protect the customer or the patient. Um, Unfortunately, so widening, it's, um, it's a difficult topic to discuss to dentists. Uh, um, the reason why is because there is, um, there is a, an economic point of view of using and promoting widening uh, in, a, in, in dentistry. It's, it's purely by choice. Most of, the, most of the time is by choice of the patient or customer. Um, and it's, it's, it's good economic for dentistry. Mm. Um, now limiting, now with the access of those products online, uh, you can still receive them uh, through, your, through your post and just still carry on doing it, uh, doing it at home. But I think it's, uh, there should be a health warning on this product to say this could seriously damage your, your health and you need to be aware of that. I think a warning is definitely necessary because I feel like a lot of consumers these days actually don't understand that your teeth don't have the ability to repair themselves like the rest of your body. Um, and that's, that's an important point to note because everybody has access to online shopping these days, especially in major markets. If you, are per if you have the ability to purchase a 35% hydrogen peroxide kit from overseas, not having any indication as to what the percentage, what an unsafe percentage may look like and what a safe percentage may look like, you're completely in the dark about what's the best to be using for my teeth and what's the worst to be using for my teeth. And it's one thing that a dentist endorses whitening in clinic, because again, you can mitigate the risks and so forth, but people, consumers may think, you know what, I'm going to save a little bit of money. And instead of getting the whitening that my dentist endorsed, I'm going to order something online and I'm going to use it myself at home. And that's where the concern is, as you were saying before. And as what this study says here, it's that's where the serious damage um, begins to occur. And if you are constantly using a peroxide treatment at home that is far above what the safe legal limit is, pulp necrosis is a very real thing. Right. And that's something that is, again, irreversible. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, following our, our, first, our first study published in 2019, um, it, our study was picked up by an online blogger, which um, I quickly corrected, uh, but then we exchanged a few emails because we were saying so, what the point of the study? Because the tooth is just made of bone and bone regenerate. So in fact, it doesn't matter whether we harm the bone part of the tooth because it will regenerate just like the rest of your skeleton. And also I did advise him that in fact, this is absolutely wrong. And uh, you know, the dentin does not really completely renew itself. You may have some, a little bit of what we call secondary tertiary dentin that can be created as a function of trauma, but not to the extent of your tooth can be regrown from scratch entirely. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why would we need denture? Right. We cannot regrow our own teeth um, or adult teeth. So in fact, uh, so I think this is needs to I, I would advise a health warning on this product saying, you know, you've got only one set of teeth, one set of adult teeth, you know, use it, lose them, but they're an asset. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, if you mistreat them, you're going to lose them forever. And then, yes, you're going to, you can have an, in, you can have an implant, you can have a dentures, you can have, you can still have a functional mouth, but your original teeth as, are an asset. Yeah. And look, personally, I'm more in favor of people finding a safe, responsible whitening method as opposed to opting for shaving all of their teeth down and receiving a full mouth of veneers. So if somebody is looking to make over their smile, talk to your dentist, find what the best solution is before opting in for a full set of veneers. Um, but always having that consultation process so that you know that you are making the healthiest choice for your teeth, which is always going to be your dentist's priority as well. So yeah, always pushing people to have that conversation, which I'm sure based on this study is something that you would recommend as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Your dentist know better. Um, the same when you go to, to your 
general practitioner, your doctor, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a headache, a backache, you know, ask what's going on with me and it can refer it to a specialist. Uh, um, in terms in term of whining, yet your dentist know better. It's never been so interesting enough for me to study why why we were so so keen to publish it um, and to make it available as widely as possible. It's because as a scientist, as a physicist, who has no take into the into dentistry per se, and definitely not into the whining business, I was interesting to see what was happening. I'm very surprised that there were know the studies that look at this potential side effect in the, um, prior to our study. Interestingly enough, one of our peer reviewers, because this, this, this uh, publication of peer review, is mentioned that it was a long time coming study. It said it was, I've spoken to a number of dentists since the study has been published. And interestingly enough, they're all starting to come to come to me and say, you know what, I had some concern about tooth whitening. And it's interesting what you showed because now I'm gonna be prescribing less tooth whitening to my patient or we're gonna discuss a little bit. So in fact, the purpose of our study was not to harm the tooth whitening business, far from it. We wanted to create a discussion. As a discussion with your, with your dentist, as a discussion, whether the procedures that you want to do it at home um, is safe, do you need to do it as often as you as you do it? And just uh, maybe speak to your dentist if you if you become addicted to such to such a whitening uh, a whitening approach, and what could be the long term effect of uh, of whining your teeth on a regular basis, especially for those who are using a 35% peroxide. Mm. It's just, uh, is that, that, that 35% peroxide is, uh, is a, a big issue. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. The discussion is the most important part. The discussion amongst consumers, discussion amongst dentists even as well. So having people ask, you know, why do I experience that sensitivity? You know, why is it necessary for me to have a gum shield? You know, why is this something that we have to accept in order to have this cosmetic benefit? And is it worth it for me? Is it worth it for my patient? Like having that conversation is the most important part, as you said, and not just accepting that, you know, this ingredient that's 150 years old that all the books say is the best way to go, you know, is my only option. So I think what the importance of these studies are is kickstarting that conversation and having people asking the questions um, to themselves and also to their dentists as well about, you know, what's my best course of action here? For yeah. sure. And one for I guess uh, another point I wanted to mention related to the study. So in, in our manuscript, we never shared the name of the supplier. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is because um, it's not a name and shame approach. We, we don't want to name and shame. And in fact, we've been working with supplier for a number of years. We've been working with that supplier for a number of years. And that supplier ended up creating a 5% concentration of carbamide peroxide based on the research that we've done. That's amazing. And yet, so yet this, this a new publication came out and it showed adverse effects and is still using the same original product that we, that we use. So in fact, we've been working behind the scene with a manufacturer, but we, we agreed with, um, with scientific journals that we not named the, the manufacturer because all what's important is a component, the, chemical, the chemistry um, and the, yeah, the, the chemistry inside the, the carbon white peroxide gels that's being used and the name of the company does not matter. So in fact, we're not trying to create sure. adverse publicity to, to that company, considering that they've been very focused on trying to create an ethical whitening approach using the carbamide peroxide. Of course. I mean, two things on that. The first one, it's amazing that the manufacturer actually cares enough about, you know, the people using their product that they really wanted to make a change, even if it affects their, their profit in the long term or whatever it may be, they are concerned about the health of the people using their product enough to make that change. So that's incredible. The, the second thing, as you said, it's the name and shame thing is, unfortunately, it is common in a lot of these studies. It's, mm -hmm. you know, I look at this company, look at what they're doing. And a lot of a lot of businesses struggle to recover from that sometimes, especially when it's, you know, a scientific journal that is very hard to refute. So, no, that's that's an excellent point. And I think it was um, a great decision leaving the name of the business out and mainly purely just focusing on the science behind this chemical yep. and the oxidative process itself as well. Um, 
Lauren, that's almost all we have time for. But okay. at the at the end of every episode, we do a little segment called Quick Fire Questions. Um, I'm going to ask you three or four questions, and I'd love to hear the first answer off the top of your head. Um, so let's dive straight in. The first question I've got for you is, did you have a role model in the early days of your career? So I've been thinking a little bit about this. So role model for early days of my career. So as I said, I was a physicist, and I came to work with um, a medic. And in fact, that medic was one of the first adopter of um, of atomic force microscope to look at calcium signaling um, in a bone cell. And for me, the ways that it could, it was in fact very interested with new toys. And in fact, when he passed away, I gave an auditorium um, and I gave a, a presentation as a, as a symposium. And so his name is Professor Mike Orton, the late Professor Mike Orton from uh, University College London. And he was my mentor, is somebody that uh, drove me, he developed me as a scientist that I'm today. And interestingly enough, he told me, Lauren, you should stop working on rat tail collagen, because that's what we do in basic science. And you should go and work on rare disease related to collagen and what happened to collagen inside the body. And this study, that we talked about it today started on collagen it went on to cells and, and tooth whitening but every day in my lab we talk about collagen um in various parts of the body so yes definitely the late professor mark Horton from ucl yes that was my role model it's incredible to hear that you went from having a relationship as a boss and employee and hating each other to him being your role model no no, no it was not hating we didn't understand each other we didn't know so it was no hard feeling so was some uh, misunderstanding uh, on the scientific level rather than personal level yeah right right well it's incredible nonetheless that he's become your role model yes. um and i'm sure that the things that he's taught you which you're now accomplishing um goes on to you know change an industry forever like it's it's incredible to hear yeah. that um all right question two name one person in your industry whose work you currently admire well i'm not, i'm gonna go beyond my industry because i think it's the same sort of mind frame but mm -hmm. this time at a global scale and in fact for me as a technologist uh, looking up at being a physicist developing equipment instrument trying to understand the next step and developing developing new tele, uh, new new technology I, i'm gonna be very biased i'm gonna say elon musk because for me having seen um, some of scientific uh, presentation around Neuralink, was doing with uh, spacex and i just wish it could apply some some is some of his approaches to our house and having that complete futuristic or innovation associated to our industry. We need somebody like that to come and revolutionize how dentists fix teeth. And so for me, it's definitely somebody, uh, you know, I'd love to have a five minute chat with him. Well, typically what we do is we take this snippet from the episode and we send it to the person to try to get them on the podcast. So if Elon Musk That'd joins great, the podcast, yeah. Absolutely. I'll, I'll sure I'd love to speak to Elon Musk and to see what the next future of dentist of dentistry. You know, some of the procedures that we still use today haven't evolved over a hundred years. Yeah. And right. we're still using them. So we definitely need to think about uh, how to make dentistry evolve uh, for 22nd century. I'll email this to him and I'll, I'll be sure to see you Lauren. <laughs> um, all right, well, question three, if this wasn't your profession and also including the physics background as well, what would you be doing instead? Um, I'll, be, um, I'll be designing landscape. I've got a passion for building gardens. Something creative. That's definitely a yes. you know, step in the opposite direction. That's incredible. Absolutely. So designing garden and uh, woodworking, yes, absolutely. So I wouldn't be behind a computer all day long. I'll be in a workshop. Is that something that you do in your free time at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, ah, that's good. Absolutely. That's good. Well, it's never too late. I mean, it could always be the next career step yeah. after research. <laughs> Maybe Absolutely. something in retirement. Um, yeah. All right. Last question. For all of the young people finishing their degrees and coming into this industry, what is your most important piece of advice for them? So ne never believe that uh, you cannot achieve what you want to achieve. I mean, I was a straight physics student. I stopped studying biology when I was 14. And I went to work into a faculty of medicine. 
whereas the first day of the job, my so Professor Horton told me, Ron, you know about uh, atomic force microscopy? Yes, well, I know about collagen. Go and do some work on collagen atomic force microscopy. I've never heard about that word before. And in fact, you learn, you learn. So just take the plunge, go for it. And if you really want it, you can get it. And don't let anybody think otherwise. It's very, very important to chase your dream and not stop along the way. Every got the potential, every got a different potential. And it's just a matter of time when everybody can realize it. Incredible advice from somebody who took such a massive pivot in their career to such a, a wildly different industry. So that's definitely important advice. And um, anyway, Dr. Laurent Bozak, thank you very much for joining us on Dental IQ today. This has been unbelievably informative for me. Um, and your research paper is public access. It is open access. Uh, for all of our listeners who would like to read, it's called the, the Compromised Dental Cells Viability Following Teeth Whitening Exposure. I heavily recommend having a read. Um, but yeah, thank you very much again, Lauren. Uh, we hopefully will have you again on soon to talk about your next paper that comes out. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Dental IQ. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow us and leave a rating. And you can also find us on Instagram at dental underscore IQ. If you'd like to join us on Dental IQ or have any topics that you want us to cover, you can reach me at fabio at dentaliq.com.au. Thank you so much for joining us again. We hope to catch you next week. Dental IQ is produced by Highsmile.